Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about opening your eyes to a new view of life. I'm thrilled that you joined us today. You know, here at Open Your Eyes, our hope is that what we share each week can help you as you strive to reach your goals and help those on your team and family. And if there were any message that we would want you to hear today, it is that you are filled with immense potential, that there's great value in you, in your future, and your efforts to improve. So I hope today you hear something that can help you get a better view of your place in the world and how you can live to that potential. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about flipping the script in life. So what is the largest state in the United States in terms of geographic area? Not Texas. It's not California, but Alaska. Its name means the Great Land, and it is the seventh largest subnational division in the world and makes up over 670,000 square miles. And despite its massive size, it is the third least populated state in the Union. With a population of only 730,000, there are about as many people living in the city of Portland, Oregon, as there are in all of Alaska. And about half of the population in Alaska lives in the Anchorage area. Now, the 33rd largest city in Alaska is Nome. Population, 3,700. Located in North Alaska on the Bering Sea, Nome has several claims to fame. It's the largest gold pan in the world, and the second claim to fame is that it got its name by mistake. You see, a British cartographer copied the name from a nautical chart. Now, the writer of the original nautical chart wrote a question mark and the word name after that question mark next to a point on the map where Nome is now located because he didn't know the name. And the map maker misread the writing and wrote Nome on the map, and the name stuck. Now, in the last several decades, Nome has come to be known as the finish line for what is the longest and most spectacular race in the world, the Iditarod. The Iditarod is run in early March of each year, and in that race, mushers and their dog teams travel from Anchorage in the south across the state and up the coast to Nome in the north. In total, the race extends 938 miles, and that's farther than the length of Texas. And the course record for traveling the almost 1,000 miles is seven days and 14 hours. And with almost two days of required rest for the dog teams, that means on average the teams travel about 180 miles per day. An incredible feat for anyone, let alone a team of dogs who are doing so in the most extreme conditions possible. The average temperature during the race is 30 degrees below zero. The teams face whiteout conditions and travel much of the race on ice. A team consists of a musher and 12 to 14 dogs, and at least five of those dogs must be on tow line at the end of the race. Well, the first 100 miles of the race travels through Moose Alley, aptly named because the moose are thick in the area and prefer to use the trail. In 1985, Susan Butcher lost her chance to become the first woman to win the Iditarod when her team came around a sharp turn and encountered a pregnant moose. The moose killed two dogs and injured six more. In other years, teams and drivers have been sent into the forest by a charging moose or two. Now from there, the route takes mushers up over the mountains to the Alaska Divide, 
a 3,200-foot climb. Then the trail heads down Dalzell Gorge, a steep 1,000-foot drop that requires breaking the entire way. And the gorge drops into the Tatina River. There, dogs have fallen through the ice. And in 1997, Ramey Smith lost his finger when it hit an overhanging branch while his team was skating down the gorge. In the last miles of the race, when the mushers and dogs are most tired, they enter a seven-mile stretch called the Blowhole. And the name fits because the Blowhole is right off the coast and the wind relentlessly hammers you from the side. In a snowstorm, the winds can approach 60 miles per hour, which topples many sleds. In 2018, two mushers got caught in the blowhole. The snow was blowing sideways as fine as desert sand, and when it hits you, the dogs and the mushers, it just stings incredibly hard. So, with frostbite and hypothermia setting in, the two teams huddled together. One of the mushers, Jim Lanier, was 77 years old. And he had become disoriented in the storm and was waiting for another team to come along. And when the next musher came along, he saw Lanier's situation and stopped, helped him untangle his lines, and worked to free his sled. However, when they finally got his sled ready to go, the dogs were just too fatigued to move on. So the musher chose to stay and look after Lanier and his team until help could arrive. Now, one of the most famous mushers in history is Ali Zirkel. And the funny thing is, despite competing in 21 Iditarods, and despite her immense popularity with fans, Allie never won the race. Allie moved to Alaska when she was 20 years old, and she loved dogs her entire life. Growing up, it wasn't out of the ordinary to see several stray dogs following her home. And when she arrived in Alaska, she immediately adopted six sled dogs. In the year 2000, she became the first woman to win the Yukon Quest, a 1,000-mile race from Fairbanks to Whitehorse. So she's an extremely capable racer. And she presumed if she could win the Yukon Quest, surely she could win the Iditarod. But in her first decade of trying, she never came close. Allie was seeking to be the third woman in history to win the race, something that hadn't happened in 25 years. And Allie's dogs are athletes. They have the instinct to run just like a black lab chases a tennis ball. What you have to train the dogs to do is behave themselves, work as a team, come when called, have good manners when you're running next to your sister or partner, and pace themselves. So when she trains her dogs, these are the things she focuses on. Well, in 2012, Allie decided to give all her effort to winning the Iditarod. She had participated in the Iditarod 11 times, but had never placed above 11th. Can you imagine? 11 tries and never able to reach the top 10. And racing the Iditarod is physically one of the hardest things a person can do. Yet, Allie had stuck with it for 11 years. Allie did everything she could. And at the last stage of the race, with 77 miles to go, she and another musher, Mitch Seavey, were tied but Allie lost to Mitch by only a few minutes and took second place. A remarkable finish, but still the win eluded her. In 2013, she took second again. In 2014, she was running in second when she entered the blowhole. The first place musher got stuck in the snowstorm and needed rescue to get out. 
Alec continued through the wind and storm, and despite her sled blowing over several times, she relied on her league dog, Quito, to stay on the trail, and Quito found the trail in the snowstorm and helped them reach the next station. Well, worried about her dogs, Allie put them down to rest for a few hours, and while they rested, another musher came flying past her. She quickly got the dogs on the line and had to make up 20 minutes in just 20 miles, but she fell short by two minutes. Another second-place finish. In 2015, she was leading the race when a drunken snowmobiler in the middle of the night ran over Allie and her team of dogs. He even turned around after hitting the team of dogs and tried to run over her. Allie wasn't able to recover and took fifth. The next year, she took third. Two years later, she took fourth. In 21 years, she came so close so many times, but never crossed the finish line first. Now, I wonder how many of us as we try to do things in life, never get to cross the finish line first. We try and try, but never seem to come out as fastest or perfect or as good as someone else or as we wish it would have happened. I know this has happened to me, and I suspect to you in one way or another. Perhaps in building your business, you didn't reach your initial goal or someone achieved what you wanted to achieve faster than you did, or your kids didn't get first place, and on it goes. It's as if the script has been written and you just can't win. Or perhaps you're just cursed and you can never reach your ultimate goal. Or it just seems that circumstance always leaves us falling a bit short. Well, I know in today's day and age, our kids are so involved in so many things from dance to basketball and one competition after another that they're fed the script that winning defines success. But it's remarkable when you listen to Allie talk about her 21 years in the Iditarod race, she doesn't buy into the press clippings about the record number of years she took second. She has flipped the script and defined her own success. She says that she competed for 21 years, something very few people have ever done, and she always, always finished the race. And she did it with healthy dogs. She has a great love for them. And she also has a great sense of accomplishment in her life. Would it be nice to win? Yes. But she doesn't buy into the script that others have written that she is not a real success. She is, in fact, one of the most remarkable mushers in history. And the same goes for you and me. We, like Allie, can flip the script on whatever we're attempting in life. So if all that's true, then how do you flip the script? Well, you see, we all have a script or two that we're following in life right now. Perhaps the script is your way of thinking about things. Perhaps the way you talk to yourself. Perhaps it's your approach to overcoming a habit or building a business or raising your kids. Whatever script that you're following, if you're stuck, perhaps it's time to flip the script and try a new approach. It's amazing the boost that can come to you from flipping the script. Ali could have gone on letting the media and her thoughts define her as the woman who never won. But instead, she flipped the script to define herself as the woman who never stopped trying, who cared for her dogs and loved to race. So flipping the script may need to start with how we think. You know, it's been reported that the average person has up to 40,000 negative thoughts in a single day. Now, I don't know if that's true, but surely we have a large number of negative thoughts. Negative thoughts about others, about ourselves, and our circumstances. 
And the problem with negative thoughts is that they ignite stressors. And these stressors lead us to feeling overwhelmed and distracted or depressed. And this distraction keeps us from being our best selves. So instead of hours of negative or distracted energy each day, what if we could reallocate this time and energy to reaching our goals or helping others? Let's say you spend a total of 120 minutes a day with negative scripts or thoughts. Well, in 10 years, that's over 7,300 hours or 500 working days or 1.4 years lost because of the way we think. So to flip the script, let's consider how to jettison these thoughts and keep your mind right. To do that, we need to remember this simple principle. No two things can exist in the same place or space at the same time. This is a simple law of the universe, and it goes for our thoughts as well. So flipping the script has more to do with filling your thoughts with your new script, which will put aside the negative thoughts we might typically have. And most experts in personal change will say that you need to write that script that will consume your thoughts each day, that the first 15 to 30 minutes of each day is what will prime your thinking for the rest of the day. So I call this time each morning the flip the script session each day. In your flip the script session, you'll fill your mind and heart with words and thoughts you need to sustain you throughout the day. Sometimes I will flip the script while I exercise by listening to the right podcast. Maybe I'll read scripture or messages from leaders. And over the years, I, like many of you, have found how much I depend on this daily time to flip the script. For example, perhaps as you listen to this podcast, you might realize, oh, I need to create 15 minutes in my morning routine to flip the script on my day. So don't let this impression pass without making plans in your life to put it into practice. This is flip the script living at its best. And you'll see what a difference it will make in your life. You know, speaking of scripts that society writes for us, there are a lot of media headlines nowadays telling us we're in the middle of a mental health crisis. Recently, a CDC report said that the percent of American high school students who say they have persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness rose from 26% to 44% in the last year. This is the highest reported level of teenage sadness. And this came from a government survey of about 8,000 high school students, which was conducted last year. It garnered lots of attention, and rightly so, got lots of attention from educators. Now, I don't doubt that the trends in this report are accurate, but I question the methodology of the survey. When I finally put my hands on the actual research paper, I found the questions used in the survey, and they were a bit biased. They actually primed or led participants to follow the script, and they were worded like this. During the last 12 months, did you ever feel so sad that you stopped doing some usual activities? Or another question, during COVID-19, how often was your mental health not good? You know, every question on the survey was scripted to imply or prime the respondent to think of sadness or poor mental health before they answered. Never in the survey did they flip the script and ask, during COVID-19, how often was your mental health good? Or during the past 12 months, did you ever feel so happy that you stayed engaged in activities? 
You see, the media and research was writing a script for the respondents and for us to follow. And the resulting message was that everyone is sad because the CDC says so. Now, I'm not saying that this is not an important topic. It is. Teenage sadness is a huge issue and needs our attention. And we need to step up our game to help our youth deal with the struggles that they have today. But I am saying that we get to choose the scripts we accept and make our own script from time to time. You see, the language we use and the headlines we listen to and what we believe from those scripts can and does make a difference in our life. Now, in reference to the CDC survey, what is causing a large degree of sadness in our youth today? Well, a recent article said five years ago, the psychologist Gene Twenge wrote an article entitled, Have Smartphones Destroyed a Generation? And this article sparked a healthy debate as to what type of effect phones and social media are playing in our lives. Well, a professor at Stanford University recently concluded a meta-analysis of these studies and says that the actual effects of smartphones are pretty small. But experts argue that what these and other studies don't consider is that social media isn't immediately destructive to us or our kids. But it's a lot like alcohol, a mildly addictive substance that leads to dependency. In other words, it starts to write a script that we are compelled to follow and create mindsets that we buy into. You know, Instagram reported from their internal research in 2020 that while most users had a positive relationship with the app, one-third of teen girls said Instagram made them feel worse, even though these girls feel unable to stop themselves from logging on. Cambridge researchers looked at 84,000 people of all ages and found that social media was strongly associated with worse mental health during certain sensitive life periods. For example, for teens ages 11 to 13. Another study was featured in the article, What Happened to American Childhood? In this article, an economist described her research that in the past years, American parents have nearly doubled the amount of time they spend coaching, chauffeuring, tutoring, and attending to their teenagers. And a byproduct of all of this is anxious parents, in seeking to insulate their kids from risk or danger, are unintentionally transferring their anxiety to their kids. In other words, we could ask ourselves, is social media and are we scripting anxiety into our kids? Well, the article went on to say that researchers have noticed a broad increase in an accommodative parenting style, meaning if a girl is afraid of dogs, an accommodation would be keeping her away from every friend's house with a dog. Or if a boy won't eat vegetables, feeding him nothing but turkey loaf for four years, and this was an actual story from the article, by the way, maybe what we do. You see, these behaviors, I think, come from love, but part of growing up is learning how to deal with negative emotions in the face of inevitable stress. And if kids never figure out how to do that, they're more likely to experience anxiety as they get older. Well, I don't know all the answers, but my point is this. That through these and other examples, we can see how we could possibly script anxiety into our children's lives. You know, recently, the Brookings Institute released a report that the cost of raising a child through high school has risen to more than $300,000 because of inflation. They determined that a married middle-aged couple with two children would spend that amount to raise their children through age 17. Now, I don't know who's doing these estimates, but the cost is much higher. 
They're not including time spent, effort given, prayers offered, or even the late nights sitting up waiting for teenagers to come home, right? The costs of raising children are more than the dollars and cents spent in tuition. And as a father, I used to replay the script in my mind of how hard it was to raise kids. But now, as a grandfather, I have flipped the script. I would pay 10 times $300,000 to have the joy and opportunity to do it again. I wish I could flip the time and go back and re-script myself while I was raising kids and have the perspective I do now. I would be a much happier, patient, and better father. And this leads us to our next flip the script skill that can help us while we're on our journey. Walk into the future and see things as our future self would see them. You know, one of my friends is Alan Osmond. Alan and his wife, Suzanne, are two of the most genuine and good people living on this earth. And despite having been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 1987, Alan carries on in life, giving back to so many people, including me. Alan was born and raised in Utah by parents who wanted to help their sons reach their potential. And when Alan was age 12, he and his three brothers, Jay, Merrill, and Wayne, were singing in a barbershop quartet and had been asked to perform on a Disneyland televised special. Well, after their performance, the brothers were noticed and asked to sing on The Andy Williams Show. And Andy Williams was a variety show that ran on television from 1962 to 1971. Well, Alan and his brothers did so well that they soon became regulars on the show, and they sang a wide variety of songs, many of which were written by Alan. Well, the real magic happened a few years into the show when Alan's brother Donnie showed up one day on The Andy Williams Show and sang, You Are My Sunshine. Donnie was only five years old. But because of his voice, looks, and personality, Donnie and the Osmonds would soon become a household name, and Donnie would become a teen sensation. In the early 1970s, he became one of the most popular cover boys for major teen magazines, and he and his brothers put out one hit after another. The song Go Away Little Girl reached number one on the U.S. Billboard charts, Puppy Love hit number three, and many other songs captured the attention of teenagers during the early 70s. Well, in 1976, Donnie Osmond and his sister Marie started their own variety show that aired on ABC for several years running. Marie had added her own number one song, Paper Roses. Well, the two served as hosts and would perform comedy skits, and they would host other performers and musical guests, and the show would always end with a famous song, May Tomorrow Be a Perfect Day, which was written, by the way, by Alan Osmond. Now, while the show was incredibly popular in the U.S. and U.K., in the late 1970s, the popularity of variety shows in general were in decline. And Donnie, a teen heartthrob, got married to his wife, Debbie. Debbie had been dating Donnie's brother, Jay, but through Jay was introduced to Donnie, and after three years of dating, they were married. And when the news leaked out that Donnie was married, and when the popularity of the variety show era was losing its luster, Donnie's image took a huge hit. The media and music industry labeled him as a teen sensation that had come and gone, and that he was now old-fashioned and not as hip as the singers of his day. You know, he had been so popular for so long that it was easy to buy into the scripts being written about him in popular media. He was a has-been. 
And in the early 80s, the Osman Empire suffered a few setbacks from some unfortunate investments. So the Osman brothers flipped the script and started a career in country music. But Donnie, who was now on his own, struggled. He had stress and anxiety, and he wondered why he couldn't rise to the fame that he had as a teenager. Another script was that Donnie was a nice guy, a religious guy. And that image hurt his reputation with the modern-day teenager. One publicist suggested that he purposefully get arrested for drug possession to change his image. Well, of course, he didn't. But he did work with Peter Gabriel and had a hit in the 1990s called Soldier of Love and then another called Sacred Emotion. And he was featured on several songs and videos for a variety of artists. And he produced a few albums and performed in the UK where his fan base was strong and did all he could to flip the script on his career, but it never really came about until the early 1990s when he was cast as Joseph in Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat Broadway play. There, he gave several thousand performances, and he was becoming respected and popular again. But soon he found himself struggling with anxiety and depression. He had these extreme expectations that he could never make a mistake. He stressed that if he made a mistake, he might lose his standing or popularity again. Donnie said, it tore me to pieces because I tried to be perfect. Anytime I would make a mistake on stage, I would berate myself and I was very hard on myself. And through this experience, he had a few people who helped him flip the script in his thinking. He said, because of his anxiety, I would walk on stage knowing I was going to die. It was horrible. And one night, my wife Debbie said, why don't you just go out there tonight and do an average show? And it ended up being the best show I ever did because I gave myself an opportunity to make a mistake. One day, the director of the show told him, it's not your job to make the audience happy. You just have to have the best time in your life, and the audience peeks into your life. Well, Donnie flipped the script and changed his perspective, and he started to live his own script, and his talent shined. After his extremely successful career on Broadway, he returned in 2006 to star in Beauty and the Beast as Gaston. And this led to singing songs on Mulan, The Land Before Time, and other famous productions. Then came Dancing with the Stars, which led to his show with Marie in Las Vegas. And for 11 years, Donnie and Marie had one of the most successful running shows in Vegas. It was so successful that they earned millions in the process. Now, here's the thing, not to Donnie's extent, but I think we all get following the script that is written for us in life. And ours may not be the critics or the magazines, but our script tends to get written and we tend to place our identity and our value in that script. And like Donnie, sometimes we get paralyzed by the script focusing on why things happened or didn't happen or why we can or why we can't. But there is a different script waiting for you and me. And just like Debbie gave Donnie a new script to follow, so can we do the same for ourselves and for our team and our family. And we can help them see the end from the beginning that if they persist with the new script, that their talents will shine. So what about you? Perhaps you've been building a business or attempting to achieve something for some time now or attempting to reach your goals. Should you flip the script? How can you tell the difference between when you should keep trying the same thing over and over again versus doing something different? 
And how can we know when to flip the script or when we just keep trying to do the same thing over and over again? Well, you see, we often keep trying while playing the same script in our head and think it's the only solution. And we do this in our job, in raising our kids, or in leading our teams. But the truth is, sometimes we need to keep trying, but with a different script for better execution, a different mindset, or maybe even different tactics. We often need these things to help us break loose from the mindset or circumstances that are holding us back. You know, for years, I ran marathons with a team of runners. And I was very much the type of runner that could easily fall into a routine. And the problem with this is that my body and mindset really got comfortable in that routine. But one of my fellow runners would from time to time completely change his routine. He would train at a different time of day or run shorter sprints and sometimes would not run for a week, letting his body adapt. And it's interesting that he made much more progress in improving his running times and was significantly healthier than me. And you know, the same is true for almost anything we do. To regain our health and our mental strength, sometimes we need to do things differently than prescribed or scripted. When you flip the script, the outcome may be the same, you might even fail, but when you flip the script, you're giving yourself more opportunities for success. And perhaps the success is measured by just finishing the task or just enduring the heartbreak or not falling into old patterns or practicing something new and sticking to your goals of what's important to you. And for those things, getting a fresh perspective can make all the difference. So as we end today, remember, like Allie, run the race and don't buy into the script that others may write for you. The work to win is worth the effort. And finishing the race is what really matters. Write your own script for success. And help your team and family write a script that challenges them and helps them grow. And like Donnie Osmond, helps them find where their talent really lies. I believe that we all have a script waiting for us to write. It takes a bit of discovery, listening, and faith. But we can find our path if we are open to flipping our view of what it is we are trying to do. Well, most of all, thanks for being here today. And don't forget to share this podcast with a friend and join us next week for another podcast as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become.